Hi everyone and welcome back to episode 7 of That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and it's been a really busy weekend recording shows. On Friday I recorded and spoke with Nick Pope and that is the episode you are tuning into right now. Yesterday, Saturday the 13th of June, I spoke with Thomas Winterton of Skinwalker Ranch fame. He is the ranch superintendent and that episode was a great conversation, will be released next weekend around the 20th, 21st of June. And today, uh, Sunday the 14th of June, I've just spoken with Dan, uh, you know better as The Signal on Twitter, for our second episode of the Skinwalker Ranch Watch Along, which again was a lot of fun. We got some really great feedback on the new format we're trying out. That is going online as a Patreon exclusive. So if you want to support the show for as little as $1, get on to patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast. Every dollar really does count, folks. It helps us get the show out and better quality, it helps us improve the equipment for the show, and it lets me get more content out to you more regular as well. But as always, your listens are the most important thing, your streams, downloads, likes, subscribes, and reviews, so please don't forget to leave a review of the show. A little disclaimer before this episode, folks, there were some issues on Nick's end with bandwidth that I just can't do much about. The content of the show is really good, so please, if you can persist and bear with it, a few people have ran the episode past after I've cleaned it up as best I can, have praised the interview and gave us some really glowing feedback on it as well. It's something that I promise you won't happen again, it's just on Nick's end with some bandwidth issues, so again, apologies for the the poor audio quality that happens um, quite regularly throughout, and if you can persist to the end, I would really appreciate that. Once again, folks, Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. This is Andrew Hall, host of Dead Hand Radio, a podcast about the Cold War and its effects on our culture, technology, and the future. Join me, and together we'll explore this fascinating period of history and examine the incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, and culture and discuss how it all relates to the future of our world. My goal is to explore these topics with the audience, to learn, to educate, to entertain, and exchange ideas with those interested. Dead Hand Radio is available on all podcast platforms, or you can visit deadhandradio.com to learn more about the show. You can also hit me on Twitter at deadhandradio, or email me at deadhandradio at gmail.com. If you'd like to get in touch, this is Andrew Hall signing off. So welcome back to episode seven of That UFO Podcast. A few weeks ago on Twitter, the podcast being pretty new, I put a a list of my dream guests and there were four names on that list. Uh, Chris Mellon, Tom DeLong, Louise Elizondo and the name on there with them was Nick Pope. And just thanks to the sheer volume of listens and some of the great guests I've had on already. I'm very pleased to say I have Nick Pope on the line with me now. Nick, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Nick, you are based out of Arizona, so I should be saying good morning rather than good evening as here in the UK. I have grown up, for those who don't know, watching Nick Pope on television, on documentaries. I have read his books that I'll talk about at some point. 
Yeah, I remember even watching my earliest memory, Nick, was the Rendlesham Forest incident, which I'll talk about later on, back on Strange But True, on Sky in the UK when I was very young. So you're someone I've kind of grown up watching on the TV. Well, yes, I have been at it for a while, I guess, and some would probably say for too long. But uh, yeah, thinking back, I suppose my first book, Open Skies, Closed Minds, must be 25 years old by now, yes. Yeah, and some of those books are still as relevant as ever, if not more relevant in the current climate. Uh, it's been a it's been a crazy couple of years, particularly in the in the UFO community. And just taking you back a further six years, I attended one of your lectures in Berwick when you were on a short visit to the UK. If you remember doing that, very much. So it was a very enjoyable evening. Yeah, it was great. And you know what? That's the kind of thing. And people I was speaking to in the bar, which you were also very kind to kind of stop and speak to everyone that had attended as well, um, said they'd loved it. And it'd be great to get you back over again at some point. Obviously, once lockdowns and COVID and global pandemics are cleared. So always welcome to, to speak to you in the UK as well. Um, but Nick, I just want to get straight into the conversation again. So listeners will no doubt be absolutely familiar with you, your background and your story, but I, I never think it's it's too much to go back over. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit again about your background uh, in the UK, you've been described usually as the UK's Fox Mulder. For me personally, you're, you're a bit about, uh, you're more of a Louise Elizondo before Louise Elizondo was a name. And uh, you've been dealing with the kind of UK's X-Files that's been came to be commonly known as. So for listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and your role in the Ministry of Defence previously? Certainly. Well, I was a civilian employee in the Ministry of Defence and I served there for 21 years. And over the course of that 21 year career, I did, I think, about seven or eight different jobs at increasingly senior rank as, as I progressed upwards. And from 1991 through to 1994, I was posted to a division called Secretariat Air Staff, where my duties included researching and investigating the UFO phenomenon. And the brief was to see if there was anything that indicated a potential threat to the defense of the UK or anything that suggested anything of more general defense or scientific interest. And we were limited to cases in the United Ken, uh, the, the UK air defense region. And uh, we got about, I suppose, depending on, on the time, two to 300 sighting reports each year. In, in some subsequent years, it, it increased to about seven or eight hundred I think but during my tour of duty it was two or three hundred and and we investigated them to the best of our ability most of course turned out to have conventional explanations but some were a little bit more difficult to nail down of course what what for you would an investigation involved so if, if a case or a sighting lands on your desk or, or the phone rings as it would have been back in the in the early to mid 90s what, what would your steps then be next well, the first thing, and you're quite right about uh, the telephone, actually, almost literally the first thing that would happen is the phone would ring and somebody would would uh, relay the details of a sighting. Now, we in true civil service um, fashion, of course, we had a, a standard form to record a UFO sighting. But before that 
sounds too bureaucratic, I should say that our form was very closely based on the old United States Air Force Project Blue Book forms. And indeed, our terms of reference and our methodology was almost identical to the, the old Project Blue Book. So the first thing we would do is, is essentially elicit the details of the witness's story using the form as a guide. So you'd start off literally getting the date, time, uh, and location of the sighting. And then all the details, the description, estimation of, of speed, angle of elevation, um, recording of any sound. If we had it, of course, photos and videos would play a huge part in, in this. It's not so prevalent then as it um, um, is now, of course, but we did get some. And, and then, then we would do three different things. There were basically three strands to our investigation after, after I'd interviewed the witness. The first was radar. I mean, literally every case was copied across to colleagues in a division called Directorate Air Defense, and they were the MOD's radar experts, and we would check to see if anything unusual had been picked up on military radar systems. The second thing is we would run a whole series of other checks, um, cross-referencing with things that we either knew about or could find out about. So we had, for example, the NOTAMs, Notices to Airmen, setting out every single piece of, of unusual aerial activity scheduled for a, a particular day, whether it was a weather balloon launch, um, um, military exercise involving flares, whatever it was, we had access to all that. And, and we would literally run through checking commercial flight paths, military low-flying exercises, weather balloon launches, as I mentioned, satellites, meteors. We, we'd reach out to the Royal Observatory Greenwich on the astronomical side of this. Uh, the meteorological side of it, of course, was separate. Um, and we would, we would try to match the date, time, and location and description of the sighting with something we, we could find out about. And that's how we effectively explained, I suppose, 80% of the sightings in conventional terms. And the, the third and final strand, I mentioned earlier photos and videos. If we had something like that, Obviously, we had access to intelligence, community, imagery analysis, resources, and capabilities, and, and we could um, use those. So uh, you've said that around 80% could be explained away, and that's the frustration of the, the subject of UFO or UAPs, that there's so much that, that isn't anything fantastic or out of the ordinary and, you know, ultimately would end up disappointing people. But there is that very small percentage, a, a percentage nonetheless, where it can't be explained. And it's only going to take those those couple of real smoking guns, bits of evidence, really good cases to make this into something more and obviously take us that next kind of leap forward. So can I just ask, in your time at the MOD, was there a particular piece of evidence or a case that you came across and dealt with that you would say stood up against all others as, as the one you would put your hat on? Yes, indeed. And I should just flesh out those figures, by the way, to say that during my tour of duty, but more generally, uh, is roughly speaking, 
it broke down 80% of cases explained as misidentifications, so aircraft, lights, bright stars and planets, satellites, um, all, all the usual things. 15% of cases, really insufficient data to make a, a firm assessment of what we were looking at, and 5% unknown. And absolutely, one of my favorite sound bites in all of this was that the skeptics have to be right every day. The believers only need to be right once. And you absolutely, literally, do only need that one case to, to be the smoking gun, and you are in game-changing, paradigm-shifting territory. I yeah. suppose during my time on the UFO program, we had one incident stood out, and it, it's a series of sightings that took place over a period of about six hours in uh, March 1993, late on the 30th, early hours 31st. And we had uh, several dozen reports from multiple locations around the UK, quite a lot of police and military witnesses, direct overflight of at least two military bases, RAF Cosford and RAF Shawbury. And as I say, the, the sightings took place over a series of about six hours. The first sighting, as far as I recollect, took place at about 8.30 on the evening of March 30th. And um, it, it, there was a scoutmaster, I believe it was, with a, a kind of troop of, of scouts. And um, they all saw this thing. And, and the description that we got was, imagine two Concorde aircraft pasted together and flying side by side. So that, that was somewhat bizarre. And then the final report of the day was at 2.40 the following morning. So about just over six hours later. And that was the meteorological officer at RAF Shawbury, who described a vast triangular-shaped craft about 200 feet above the ground, emitting a low-frequency humming sound that he said was quite unpleasant. Uh, one could feel it as well as hear it. And um, he saw a pencil-thin beam of light firing down at the ground as if it was looking for something. He said the light retracted, and suddenly from a speed of maybe no more than 30 or 40 miles an hour. This object accelerated away to the horizon at uh, high max speed. And when I asked him, well, you know, give some sort of estimate, help me out here. He said, look, imagine a military fast jet, like a tornado or a hawk or a harrier. He said orders of magnitude above that in terms of both the speed and the acceleration. And this is a man with eight years' experience in the Air Force. So um, that's a very short summary of what was an extraordinary case. The MOD file on this has now been declassified and released. It's over 100 pages. Um, all this is now out there, or most of it, I think, in the public domain. And interestingly, it was three years to the very night after that very famous wave of sightings in Belgium where they scrambled two F-16s to, to try and intercept a UFO. So that was interesting. Wow. So what really stands out to me there is, again, you've got multiple witnesses, but then you've got someone with a military background, which is always one that really hits the nail on the head for me as, as credibility goes. And that's something I talked about with MJ Benias a few nights ago was credibility. So 
and they're talking about orders of magnitude that the, sh- the speed this thing has has flown off at. So that straight away strikes a chord talking about the Tic Tac incident, which is obviously extremely prevalent in the last few years. And I'm sure, and I've seen many of them, you've done countless interviews over, uh, including recently on like the Basement Office show that I recommend anyone checks out. That's something I've got really into recently. Was there ever a moment w- within the MOD where you felt you came close or you approached something like, We've had the last couple of years with the US Navy and Department of Defense coming out and stating they have unidentified vehicles incursing in their airspace and, you know, close to leaking anything or releasing any footage like that. Well, all our leases, all our releases were controlled releases. I mean, they, they, we I don't think I can recall an incident where anyone in the Ministry of Defense has leaked any UFO information. What what we did do, of course, and I came out of retirement and came back and and helped with this. I mean, I, I took early retirement in 2006. In May of 2008, we released the first batch of declassified UFO files. And yeah. in, in fact, the final three files were only released just last year. So, I mean, it took, what, you know, nearly 11 years to, to do this and involve the declassification and release of about 60,000 pages of documents. But just going back to, to the question, was there anything similar? Yes, on, on this um, March 1993 incident, my head of division, who was very skeptical, wrote to the assistant chief of the air staff, and this document has been declassified, it's, it's in the public domain, and he said, he concluded his report by saying, and I haven't got the document in front of me, so this is just off the top of my head. Sure. It may not be verbatim, but uh, he said, in summary, there is considerable evidence to suggest that an unidentified object or objects was operating in the UK air defense region that night. And this was clearly of extreme defense significance. Now, why that was important in terms of phraseology is we in the Ministry of Defense had a little soundbite that we routinely deployed with Parliament, the media, and the public, where we said that UFOs were of no defense significance. So, of course, it was rather a subversive document, in fact, because it contradicted our own public line on the phenomenon. And, and the words were chosen quite deliberately. That, again, speaks volumes to me that, that that's came out and the British media have this really nasty habit of not latching on to these things in a serious manner. I'm sure that's something you more than anyone would know about. In various interviews, you've talked about how every piece of literature or writing or article or television report in the UK tends to come with the tagline of little green men, cartoon drawings of flying saucers, and yet when we've got really credible witnesses, we've got police officers, people with military backgrounds, you know, mass sightings, it's never reported on in a serious way and looked at. Why do you think that is, and why are we so different to the United States media that seems to have really latched on to the the USS Princeton and Nimitz story the last couple of years? Well, I should say that in relation to to the incident I described from 1993, of course, that predated the UK's Freedom of Information Act. Um, 
So there was no, I mean, although we had this very impressive case file, nobody else had it. And uh, one or two reports got into the media. But here's another interesting thing about both that case and the Belgian case. Of course, it happened late on the 30th and in the early hours of the 31st of March. So it was a little bit too late to make the papers on the 31st of March because the presses had already run. So if any media stories ran in the newspapers, they would have run on 1st of April. And of course, that's not a very good date to run a UFO story, which again is possibly an interesting thing to consider in relation to Belgium and and the UK uh, cases from from March 1990 and 1993, respectively. But I think I think I take the point. um, Things are changing, though. I, I think. Uh, the declassification and release of the Ministry of Defense UFO files has played a part. And I probably, while that was going on, did several hundred interviews on mainstream television programs for national newspapers. Um, And I did see in the course of that program to release the files, things changing. As journalists moved away from this little green man flying saucer dynamic to suddenly realizing that that we were serious about this, that we had 60,000 pages of documents. Some of them were classified secret UK eyes only. We had police and military witnesses. We had pilots. We had radar operators. Um, There was a serious side. And of course, my preference in terms of newspapers, I now act, uh, I, I work as a broadcaster and journalist myself, my preference is always to, to be not, not necessarily quoted in these articles, though I am, but to actually write them myself. And in that way, you have a much better idea, um, you may much uh, better chance of steering the narrative. And whether I'm writing for, for you know, the New York Times or the New York Post in the States or, or the Times or the Guardian or whoever it is in the UK, I always try to do that, and I always try to play up the serious side of this, the important defense, air safety, and national security issues that result from this, whatever we think we're dealing with. So do you think that the appetite is changing within the UK's media, that we will see this reported in a different way, in a more serious way? Um, Obviously, with the timing with COVID-19, it's dominating the headlines worldwide, but it still seems in the US they have had a lot more mainstream shows pick up interviews with the the key players or the pilots they have a probably a a different relationship with their military in that sense anyway but would you say in the uk that things things are changing and potentially could go down that route that we're going to see more and more come out i think things are changing i think the release of the mod's ufo files laid the groundwork for this but when the new york times ran their famous scoop about the existence of the Pentagon's ATIP program. And when those three videos found their way into the public domain of US Navy jets chasing UFOs, I think that was a major paradigm shift. And and yes, it's probably played out more in the US media. But having said that, one of the first interviews I did about that when the story broke was with the BBC. So, so they have tracked it. Now, it was interesting because on 27th of April, 
the Department of Defense here in the US finally decided to put out those three videos themselves. They've been in the public domain, of course, for years, but they took ownership of it. Uh, the Pentagon issued a press release, and uh, as I say, on, on 27th of April, and effectively said, yes, these three videos are genuine, they are ours, and we don't know what, what these mystery objects are. And it was fascinating, the timing, as you say, in the middle of the, the pandemic, uh, was this a classic case of a bad day to, a, a good day to bury bad news? Or was it actually, in some sense, designed to draw attention to it with people desperate for something else apart from coronavirus stories? And you'll know better than I how it played out in, in the UK. But here in the US, even though those three videos have been out for some years, it made a huge splash, the Pentagon putting it out themselves and saying, this is official. Yeah, for me, it was from a US point of view, it was further confirmation, a lot more vindication, even more credibility to, to the story that's came out and the story that was run with. In the UK, I still feel it's been extremely quiet. It's been nice to see the odd notification on my phone from BBC News or Sky News in the UK where it has had a more serious article. But it, it still very much seems lost in the shuffle. If I, if I ask you, colleagues that I work with or you know people that I know who aren't necessarily interested in the UFO topic or subject, they've generally not heard or seen in the videos. And even some of the people I know that are just dipping a toe in the water of ufology and UFOs, you mentioned the videos and it's something they're like, yeah, I've heard of Tom DeLong's group, but it's again, educating more and more. And hopefully, like you say, that paradigm shift has, it definitely has had an impact. And it's just to see if we can kind of keep that momentum going. What were, I'm really interested to know, Nick, what were your initial thoughts when you saw that New York Times article I don't know if you had any pre-existing knowledge that that was going to be coming. And then when you did see the three videos yourself. Well, I thought it was about time. I, I thought clearly those of us who've investigated this within government have always known, as, as have, to be fair, the UFO community. But we've always known that there have been these incidents. And, and my goodness, over my MOD uh, career. I'd spoken to to many, many civil and military pilots who had um, seen these things, in some cases chased them, tried to get gun camera footage. So, so I thought it was a vindication of that, and particularly for the pilot community, which has always had an uneasy relationship with, with this. Um, pilots have to be careful. Um, Nobody wants to be grounded because there are concerns over their state of mind. Uh, there is still a stigma about this. Uh, nobody wants to be grounded because some PR um, bureaucrat in a commercial airline thinks it'll be bad for business if, if pilots start speaking out about UFO sightings. Uh, that's, I, I think that's the perception of the problem. I don't think it's an actual problem because the pilots aren't making any particular value judgments about what they've seen. They're, they're simply saying, I have seen something. And very often, of course, as in these cases, that's borne out by the radar data too. But I was very glad to see it out there. And I, I fully expected it to kickstart a serious debate about this. Now, I think it goes back to your question about the media and the public and perhaps how 
amidst the pandemic, whether this is genuinely getting out there into the wider public awareness or not. I think it depends what you think the main audience is or should be. And I don't want this to sound arrogant, but particularly in the US, yes, I think it would be great if the wider public, if you stop people in the streets and they say, oh yeah, I've seen those three videos. And I think to be fair in the US, that's the response you get. But I'm more concerned that there's visibility of this issue now within the United States Congress. So, for example, um, in the Senate Armed Forces Committee, in, in the Intelligence Committee, that, that questions are being asked, classified briefings are being held. And indeed, it's now a matter of record that a number of senators have come forward and said, yes, I've received a classified briefing. And of course, even the president has commented on, on it fairly recently and, and said, um, well, he said two or three different things about it. The first thing is he confirmed that he had indeed attended a, a brief meeting on this. And he concluded one of his interviews by saying words to the effect of, um, you know, there does seem to be something a little bit different about this this time around. And we're watching. And another thing he said at the end of a Reuters briefing quite recently, at the end of a Q&A with Reuters, is, is he said, yeah, that's that's one heck of a video. Um, and again, I haven't got it in front of me, but uh, who's to say it isn't real? So this, this was unheard of. Previously, presidents didn't talk about this. And if they did, it was after they were no longer president. And it was usually on a, a chat show with Jimmy Kimmel and making a joke about it. Well, now yeah. we've got these on the record confirmations and we're in we're in totally new territory here. And you're right. And I think even a few months before those comments from uh, President Trump, he had actually commented to say that he didn't think much of the videos, even though we had that weighted pilot testimony on there as well. Um, Again, the pilot testimony is always a really interesting thing for me. I've just recently listened to an interview with Ray Boyer, who is a, a UK or, or was a UK commercial pilot who reported um, several sightings, but one particularly over the UK. I know you're a regular guest on Howard Hughes, The Unexplained, and it was on his show. And I don't know if you'd heard Ray Boyer's case, but uh, flying. I, not not only, yeah, uh, not only have I heard his case, I've actually uh, met Ray. Uh, a couple of times. In fact, he and I both spoke some years ago at at a, an event at the National Press Club in the in the U.S. in in Washington D.C. So I'm extremely familiar with with uh, that story. I've seen the declassified the small declassified MOD case file on that, and indeed I've had the the pleasure of of talking about this um, with with Ray personally. It's a fascinating case. It is, and I think for any listeners who haven't haven't heard Ray's case, um, to summarise, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but he basically, um, while, while climbing to, to altitude, going from something like the Isle of Man to Southampton, a relatively short UK flight, um, saw an object that, from, from his judgments, or two objects at least, were around one mile long um, at, at distance, which is, which is quite incredible. Yes, uh, this, is, this is 2007. And uh, absolutely, and you can see in the declassified MOD file that there was indeed, very briefly, a, a, an un uncorrelated return on the primary radar system. Yeah. Uh, and in, 
I'll have to be careful because I don't think the names are in the public domain, but there were some other pilots on, on other flights in the area and, and passengers too, but uh, at least one, maybe two other pilots I'm aware of saw something too. Absolutely fascinating case. Yeah, and Ray made that same point you've just made about being a pilot at the at the time that, that there was a stigma attached to these kind of reports and that the report was filed, but just due to time constraints, he basically got off a flight, asked anyone on the flight who had also seen it if they wanted to report it, ran into his office and a, a very British thing, he grabbed a cup of tea because he was so shaken by the incident and then hopped back on his next flight, hoping to see it again, which he, which he of course didn't. And it was gone from radar as well. So again, it's, there's there's a UK incident. A pilot in the UK has seen something extraordinary, something similar. Again, it's just another another one of those kind of paperweights on the on the desk, isn't it? And the, the file caseload. But we've talked a lot about it. It is. Um, yeah. Let, let me just uh, say though, of course, it's an interesting contrast between Ray Bowyer's sighting and what happened just a year before in the United States with the Chicago O'Hare. UFO sighting. And in that instant, the airline concerned absolutely clamped down savagely on their people. Many uh, number of pilots and um, ramp personnel and, and other airport personnel had seen this. And uh, the particular US airline concerned effectively put a gag order uh, down. And I, I don't know whether they articulated it in these terms, but it was pretty clear that uh, speaking out about this would not be career enhancing, to say the least. No, and I, I think these things rarely are in that. And especially, as you say, when it comes to uh, mental health being in question as well, it's it's better just to keep, keep quiet about it until the time's right and it's no longer something that's going to affect our careers. Um, and, and again, switching from the US to the UK, because the UK has had its own really rich and deep history with UFOs, ufology and incidents. Our own Roswell, a case that you have spoke about um, probably no less than a thousand times at least, uh, would be uh, Rendlesham Forest and the events of December 1980, which are particularly prevalent just now because we're just under six months from the 40th anniversary of Rendlesham. Do you mind, you've done it many, many times, but just summarising for the listeners what happened uh, on uh, those RAF bases those evenings? Sure thing. So we are December 1980, uh, two United States Air Force bases on British soil, Bentwaters and Woodbridge. And over three consecutive nights, there are UFO sightings um, on at least one occasion, very briefly, tracked on radar. On the first night, some of the personnel uh, think that there is a, an aircraft crash. They go out into the forest and, and they find essentially a landed UFO. And there's some physical trace evidence there afterwards, after this thing takes off again. And, and when they when they subsequently conduct a forensic analysis of the landing site, they find um, in fresh indentations in the hard, frozen ground where they estimate an object weighing several tons briefly landed, uh, burn marks, scorch marks on some of the trees in surrounding this particular clearing, and radioactivity levels which the MOD's defense intelligence staff 
describe as, as seeming to be, quote, significantly higher than the average background. Uh, again, direct quote from the MOD case file. Uh, there's activity on the second night and then on the third night again. And on the third night, the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, is told that the UFO has returned. And he, being a, a skeptic and thinking that the whole thing is beginning to adversely impact the primary mission, he, he goes out with a team of men to, as he put it, debunk this nonsense. He's not able to debunk it because he becomes a witness himself. And uh, he and his team see the UFO, uh, not on the ground this time, but in the sky, performing erratic maneuvers. And again, rather like the Kosovo incident, firing a pencil-thin beam of light, which at one point hits the ground directly in front of them. And he has subsequently said in relation to that, um, was this a weapon? Was this a, a warning? Was this communication? What was it? And he doesn't know. And so that, in a nutshell, is, is the case. Uh, dozens and dozens of on-the-record military witnesses Dozens of declassified documents from both the United States and the United Kingdom. I teamed up some years ago with two of the main witnesses, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston. And we wrote a book called Encounter in Rendlesham Forest, which, so far as I am aware, is the only book, the manuscript of which had to have security clearance before it could be published from both the United States and the United Kingdom government. You have stolen my thunder, Nick. I had that directly in my notes that it was the only book that needed clearance from the US and the UK. But that that fact itself, I think, speaks volumes for the case. Well, I think we, yeah, we we wanted to be look. All of us who've been involved with this, and you mentioned Lou Elizondo, and we can probably get on to him a little later if you like. But I think all of us who've come across this subject from within, whether it's government, the military, the intelligence community, we know where the line is. None of us uh, would ever characterize ourselves as whistleblowers. I think all of us, firstly, we're well aware of penalties for leaking classified information. And secondly, we wouldn't be so arrogant as, as to do that. I think so many times I, I see people not I, I'm not talking about UFOs. I'm talking about other issues here. Say, oh, you know, the public has a right to know this, and they see some document and they they get all high and mighty about it, and they they leak it. And not only is that a serious criminal offence, but it it can seriously compromise defence and national security. Sometimes putting lives at at risk. And it's all too easy for someone to say, oh, the public have a right to know, without realizing. And I've seen this in relation to, for example, Iraq um, or Afghanistan war-related documents. People put these things out because they think it's a public interest thing. And they seem to forget that when they say, oh, the American people have a right to know, that the moment you put it out like that, the Russians see it, the Chinese see it. ISIS sees it, Iran, North Korea, whoever it might be. And 99 times out of 100, the person leaking information isn't qualified to do the risk assessment as to what the consequences 
would be. So none of us who've come across classified information, whether it's about Iraq or, or UFOs or, or nuclear issues, none of us who are being responsible would do that. And John Burroughs, Jim Penniston and I absolutely wanted to do the right thing. We pretty much knew where the line was anyway, but we wanted to, to be certain. And I know some people it's not popular. Some people in the UFO community say, oh, this is, you know, you're just towing the, the party line on this. Well, yeah, I make no apologies for that. And neither you should. Um, something I've talked about on this show, as new as it is, is um, I like to be very objective about the subject. I think the facts that are out there regarding the subject as a whole are fascinating enough without having to add more to it that might not necessarily be true or credible. When you talk about the, the pencil-thin beam of light hitting the ground, I appreciate what you're saying about, you know, obviously secret sacks and uh, whistleblowing. There's, there's been persisting rumours that that's because there were potentially nuclear weapons based there and the, the potentially the, the craft itself was scanning for those. We know that uh, there's a long line of UFO and UAPs turning on and off nuclear weapons throughout the various different countries. Is that something that you've came across quite a lot in your time looking at different documents or, or different cases? Yes, I think on on nuclear issues, I... I really uh, should not offer any particular comments. You know, I've had this question come up a number of times. And one time, in fact, a TV production company came to me and said, look, we like to do an interview about UFO issues involving nuclear weapons. And I said, you know, not only is the usual policy to neither confirm nor deny the presence of nuclear weapons at any location, at any particular time, but also, I mean, just generally not commenting on nuclear issues at all. So we ended up with a, an interesting solution to that problem. Instead of being interviewed on the show, I, I presented the show, I hosted it. So I was the one who asked the questions. So I, I went around and spoke to, to people like uh, Colonel Charles Holt, uh, who, who, of course, followed the neither confirm nor deny line himself and Robert Salas and a number of other people and we looked at some incidents in the UK in the US in the Ukraine um, and uh, so all I can say is that yes I've I've presented a TV show on that I think it was called it was an episode of the unexplained files I think in which I ask the questions but I don't really answer the questions on that with apologies and, and that's understandable as well. Uh, I just want then just to touch back on Rendlesham. The story has been documented many times. There's a lot of really good documentaries out there. Even recently, I've watched the Basement Office episodes. I believe it's five and six where yourself and Stephen Greenstreet cover it with interviews with Jim Penniston in there as well. Uh, and there's a lot of really good information on it that summarises it better than I could do in a very short time here and do it justice. But what I want to ask you is, why do you think 40 years on Rendlesham as an incident is still something that we talk about and still something we go back to, still something we report on? Well, I think it's the perfect storm of a UFO case. Um, sightings over three nights, multiple witnesses, military witnesses, radar evidence, uh, radioactivity at the landing site, declassified documents from both the US and UK 
governments. I mean, it's almost, as I say, if you were to ask somebody in the UFO community, what would you want from a case? Most of what they would likely say you have in, in that particular incident. And I think the other thing is most countries probably have a case that that is regarded as the the best known, the best evidenced, however you want to characterize it, with the US, probably in terms of name recognition, it's still Roswell, though I guess that's over 70 years old now and, and maybe the Nimitz incident is, is replacing that. But with the UK, it's it's still Rendlesham, even, even as you say, nearly 40 years on, but it's still Rendlesham. It's the do flagship case. Do you think that story is finished or is there more to come? You know, there. It, I'm in two minds on this. I'm a great believer in, I suppose, the police principle of the first 48, that generally speaking, the first 48 hours of any investigation is critical. And once that's up, in terms of locating evidence and interviewing witnesses and, and things like that, you're increasingly much less likely to solve a case. But who knows? Maybe sometimes something like the 40th anniversary itself would cause somebody to say, oh, you know what? Now, who cares? I'm, I'm going to come forward and tell my story. Um, whether it's some some retired military officer, whether it's somebody who's got a document, whether it's somebody who's got a piece of physical trace evidence. I mean, we know, for example, that that some of the soil samples that were taken there, some of the um, sap samples from the trees were taken to the headquarters of the uh, Commander-in-Chief United States Air Force in Europe, General Gabriel. Uh, we don't know what happened to it thereafter. Maybe, maybe some of those questions will will be answered. So, so I'm in two minds. Forty years is a long time, but on the other hand, never say never. And maybe all it needs is is one critical piece of the puzzle. Sometimes, with an old unsolved police crime file, you know, you'll have some new witness comes forward because they want to get something off their chest. Maybe it's deathbed testimony. We've seen this before. So so who knows? I'll, I'll be watching with interest as the 40th anniversary gets ever closer. Me too. It's an area I've never visited. And again, once kind of lockdown's lifted and it's seen as uh, an essential journey, it's somewhere I'd quite like to go, particularly near the time. I just want to ask you a couple more parts on that to, before we round off this section. So recently, uh, the British author, Nick Redfern, uh, it was on, again, several shows talking about a new book where he is discussing a theory. And I know this is something I've seen you comment on, but I just wanted your comments on it for just now, that the potentially the incident in Rendlesham was British military operation using hallucinogenics on United States soldiers. I take it that's something you disagree with. Well, I have to say, first of all, um, I, I suppose six years ago, John Burroughs, Jim Penniston, and I did explore those theories in our book on this. And I, I can't remember, I haven't got it in front of me, whether it's, I think it's chapter seven or chapter nine, but we do look into ideas about um, 
holograms, holographic um, projections using the so-called ghost gun. Uh, people have heard all these stories, I'm sure, about Project Blue Beam, the idea of faking a, an alien invasion or the second coming or, or anything using this so-called ghost gun. Uh, we looked into some of that. We looked into the suggestion of hallucinogenic drugs. We looked into the suggestion of some sort of um, blind test on the guard force to see how they would react. And uh, for a number of reasons, we discounted those theories. I, I don't think the tech was there in December 1980 to do half of the things that are maybe suggested. Uh, that's before we get into any of the uh, legal and diplomatic incidents, the NATO Status of Forces Act, uh, military regulations about what you can and can't do with with your own people. I, I think um, for a number of reasons, shall we say, it's highly, highly unlikely. And uh, ironically, it falls foul of, of the principle of of Occam's razor. I mean, it's it's almost you know the, the simplest solution is is often the, the correct one. The principle of parsimony, and to compile some sort of convoluted narrative involving holographic projections and hallucinogenic drugs and uh, arguably illegal tests on on your own people, uh, it, it stretches for me credulity beyond breaking point i'm afraid and that that's that's a good answer i appreciate that i just want to ask something you said recently uh, was that the united states government even if they aren't sure on what this phenomena is would have a, a best current assessment i believe was your wording do you have your own best current assessment or if i have to word it crudely a sort of best guess as to what is going on regards tic tac incidents rendlesham forest you know very carefully not discussed aliens and whatnot because it could be so many different things. But do you have your own best summation that you think it might be? I really don't because, of course, I don't have access to the data that the United States government has on this. But for for those listeners not familiar with this concept of the best current assessment, I mean, in relation to the Tic Tac incident, I ran through, and others have their own lists, of course, um, an itemized list of possible explanations for these U.S. Navy sightings. I mean, what, what are we looking at in these three videos? And, um, you know, the, the, I won't give the full list, maybe, but, I mean, essentially speaking, we're, we're talking about could it be our own technology, some secret prototype, aircraft, missile, or drone being blind tested against the fleet? Uh, could it be a foreign power, Russia or China, perhaps? Um, could it be some sort of combination of pilot misidentification, radar glitch, and forward-looking infrared camera anomaly? Could it be a non-state actor, somebody, you know, like Elon Musk, test flying something that had inadvertently gone into these these um, military operating areas. So I went through all of this. And of course, the official position from the United States Department of Defense is 
that the phenomena shown in these videos remains unidentified. So my follow-up question was, I get that, but President Trump has said that he's been briefed. Uh, various senators on the um, Armed Forces Committee, the, the Intelligence Community, they've, they've been briefed. You don't go into a briefing. I've, I've done, in my 21 years, not just on UFOs, on all sorts of subjects, I've done a lot of briefings. I've gone in, whether it's senior military, civilian, uh, whether it's defense ministers, and I have briefed. And you don't ever go into a brief and say, we don't know. Because, the pre you know, you go into the president of the United States and you say, uh, Mr. President, you've seen those three videos. Uh, you asked us what we think. And the answer is we don't know. Because the follow-up question is, well, what's, come on, what do you think? Let's run through the list. What could it be? Can you take any of those possibilities completely off the table? Um, and, and there's an old CIA essay um, with some convoluted title about um, uh, predictive words. And when you assign probabilities, you can get into all sorts of problems by using lax language. So you give a briefing and you say, we think it's likely that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. You come out of that brief and if you don't have a definition of what likely means some someone's going to think that it just means over 50 percent or someone might con convince themselves that that it means oh you're 90 95 percent sure so it's very important that that you're clear and the the president's follow-up question the the various senators their follow-up question will be well okay what's likely what's less likely and there will be a, a best current assessment so i when I ask the Pentagon about this, wearing my journalist hat now, uh, firstly, they ignored the question. And when I pressed them on it, um, they said, we're, we're not going to be commenting on that. So it's, it's perfectly clear to me and to everyone that's done this within government that there'll be a best current assessment. But those of us that don't have current access to that data, I don't think it's responsible for us to, to try and say what it would be because it, it would simply be a guess whereas a genuine best current assessment is always data driven um nick i did have a lot of questions sent in from people uh, to ask you and i've whittled it down so with an eye on the clock um i'd like to kind of ask you some of the listener questions if you don't mind sure and then normally what i finish off with on the show is a very quick fire uh, word association round where I'll, I'll just say a couple of topics names or incidents and just ask for a few words or a few sentences from you on that if you don't mind Okay. Um, so the first question, I've very selfishly stolen uh, the, the time for myself, um, because like I say, being a fan of yours for many years, um, I read the Operation Thunderchild and Operation Lightning Strike books back when I was a holiday rep many, many years ago in Greece. And I'd just like to ask, could I push you to say a little about them? And also how much is based on experience or fact as opposed to the kind of fantastical point of it? Well, I had always wanted to write a, a science fiction novel and Operation Thunderchild and Operation Lightning Strike. It was my take on the classic, I suppose, meme of alien invasion. But asking 
how would things really unfold? And so I took not just my time on the UFO project, but other things that I'd done at the MOD, like uh, having responsibility for some of the NATO war books, um, my time in the Joint Operations Center during the Gulf War. And, and in terms of what I wanted to do was, was kind of bring that realism in terms of political decision-making, military hardware, rules of engagement, uh, where, where they can be discussed, which is not often, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And again, those are the only two sci-fi novels I'm aware of that needed security clearance from the Ministry of Defense for the same same sorts of reasons, because I was getting into I was getting into policy and procedures that that could be read across from very often from from alien invasion into into just Russia or China, I guess. Um, so I I had some fun with those novels, but absolutely very much wanted to ground them in fact, with, with regards to politics and the military. And um, indeed, I think they're going to be reissued maybe fairly shortly, and uh, we'll see if we can get them made into a, a film or a TV miniseries or something. So I, I enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, there's some real information in there too. But people shouldn't shouldn't read too much into that. No, we're not about to be invaded by aliens. I'm not trying to secretly tell people that I, I just wanted to have a go at writing realistic science fiction and as and they are both a fantastic read i actually read them the wrong way around because i i found lightning strike in uh, a, a bookshelf in greece when uh, it was towards the end of a season and i read it in a couple of days and then when i got back home i was meant to get it and my girlfriend now wife bought me that for my birthday a few years ago so it's something there uh, in the future at an expo i'd love to get signed off you when i get a chance to meet you again but yeah i would recommend anyone goes out to buy those so check on amazon check online operation thunderchild and lightning strike very realistic if you think independence day but hyper realistic so yeah i really really enjoyed those nick and like you say mini series uh, netflix that would be great and something like that um i had a question from dan if you could pick a UFO hotspot to go in the UK, where you had the best chance of maybe seeing something, where would you go? Well, I'm going to give a very counterintuitive answer. I'm going to say London. But you see, the problem with, with all of this is that when one looks at hotspots, very often people don't factor in population and population density. But one has to. And I, I mean, I've done this. I One time I, I asked one of, one of the administrative support staff to go back through, I think we just did three or four years of UFO sightings, literally get some blank maps of the UK, go through the sighting report files and do an X marks the spot. And we ended up with what looked suspiciously like a, a population density map of the UK. But in a sense, it, it, it makes sense because if there is something strange to be seen in the sky, if you're in a location, you know, London with eight, 10 million people, where, however you do the count, you're more likely to have people see it. Now, what those figures don't also take account of is, is qualitative filtering so for example there will be an awful lot of sightings there that are just aircraft on on approach to heathrow or they will be the goodyear blimp 
over Wembley Stadium or, or whatever it is. But the questions about hotspots and statistics are absolutely fraught with those sorts of problems because of all the confounds like population density, um, population size, qualitative filtering, and indeed the media. Sometimes you can get a media-created hotspot. So what happens is a sighting gets reported in a local paper, and the journalist finishes up the story by saying, did you see the UFO? Have you had a sighting? Contact our news desk. And that then smokes out reports that otherwise wouldn't have been made public because people would have not come forward, didn't know who to call, wouldn't you know, want to risk fearing ridicule. But once somebody breaks cover, it's, oh, all right, yeah, I, it's okay, I'll, I'll tell my story. So you get these media-created hotspots. Very long, complicated answer, I know, but uh, the short answer is London. Fantastic, thanks. Dan also asked um, a much shorter question as well, tea or coffee? <laughs> coffee. Coffee. Thanks, Nick. And uh, thanks, Dan, for that. Uh, Jamie asked, do you have any thoughts on the fast radio burst signals that are currently being collected, recorded and analysed? I, I suppose Occam's razor suggests that we're looking at some sort of celestial phenomena um, that, that just as originally, if you look at the history of, I suppose, pulsars, um, astronomers originally thought that that they were um, artificial um, because they repeated at a fixed point. But but we now know that it's, it's to do with, um, you know, fast rotation of of quasi-stellar objects and, and such like. Um, so Occam's razor suggests some sort of celestial um, cosmological explanation, but let's keep an eye on this. Um, absolutely. If, if, um, if there's anything, um, any pattern in, in this. I mean, uh, you know, one, one gets the, I suppose, debate about is the first thing that you're going to pick up just going to be a beacon? And then when you look towards the beacon, are you then going to find a more sophisticated um, signal, um, a message even? So I, I keep an eye on it, absolutely. And, and we've never, never lived in a more interesting time when it comes to astronomical uh, discoveries coming thick and fast and and uh, you know it's almost like the more we find out the less we know sometimes so watch it with interest but don't necessarily think aliens are signaling us we've got a really good question from luke there are a number of narratives out there regarding these uap's intentions particularly when you look at recent incidents the last 10 20 years you've got two of the stars academy louise elizondo going from a position of national security and a threat narrative. And on the other side of that, we have a Dr. Stephen Greer, who recently released a, a documentary, CE5, and it's very much focused on friendly contact. And Naluk's wondering where you sit on the fence of, of what narrative that you think would be the most appropriate. Well, I'm on the threat side of this, and I'll tell you why. Um... In military terms, a threat is defined as capability times intent. We know a fair bit about the capability because we have some uh, data. We have, for example, Mazint data, um, measurement and signature intelligence, 
Um, and, and, you know, simply put, when we look, for example, at some of the, the FLIR films, the forward-looking infrared films, we, we see apparently objects with speeds and maneuvers that are particularly interesting, and that's borne out by the pilot testimony and the radar data. So if threat is a function of capability and intent, capability looks high, frankly, we don't have any data on intent. I mean, we have, we have guesses, but that's not data. We have, well, I'd like it to be this, but again, that's not data. It's wishful thinking. So one value in your equation is unknown, and therefore the threat is unknown. It, it, it's un, unquantifiable. And in military terms, therefore, it's better to assume there's a threat and be present, pleasantly surprised when one doesn't materialize than assume that there is no threat and be caught with your pants down if that's not the case. I mean, that's, that's sort of putting it in, in simplistic terms. There are some other more practical issues here. And I, I totally get where the To the Stars Academy folks are coming from. Pushing the threat narrative is the one way that you can get engagement from, for example, the sorts of people that I mentioned in the U.S. Congress, you don't get the attention of those people by saying, you know, I wonder if we're being visited by extraterrestrials. And if we are, I expect their space brothers and sisters uh, here to share knowledge and wisdom. That, you know, nobody's going to hear that if they're sitting in the intelligence committee and do anything other than roll their eyes and switch off. But if you say to those very same people, uh, look, we have uncorrelated targets in restricted military airspace, seen by pilots, tracked on radar, filmed on forward-looking infrared camera. We don't know what it is. It might be Russia, it might be China, it might be something else, but they're very fast and maneuverable, and we should be pretty worried. We are worried. You will get engagement from those people in a way that you won't if you go the other, other way. So I absolutely, I, I've been criticized for this. I think that a lot of people in the, new UFO, in the UFO community, particularly on the more spiritual New Age side, regard me as some sort of you know, warmongering, still secretly working for the government kind of person. But I'm, I'm just telling people how it is. This is how those of us that have done this inside think about it. Potential threat. Uh, assume there's a threat rather than make benign assumptions that there isn't. And that way, not least, you will get better engagement from the sorts of people that you want to be thinking about this. Sure. And, and, and that makes sense. And I can see, regardless of anything else, potentially they would like to investigate or anything else, they know that why Luella Zondo and co have opened up the, the conversation with that aspect of it, because it is definitely a fact, but also it's going to get the attention, like you say, of, of the people that they need to to move forward, whether the UFO community like that or not. That's That was just the best way to go with it and always was going to be. Always. I mean, I've sat down, I've, I've spoken to, to Lou on a number of occasions. We've, we've sat down across the table, had a couple of beers and a chat about this. And I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that on this issue, he and I are speaking the same language and coming from the same angle. And I'm not, I, I should make it clear, I have no 
involvement with the to the stars academy i'm i'm not a, a joiner of organizations but but i think that it's inevitable that that the uk and the us government would have the same mindset on this I, right at the beginning of the interview when i was talking about our standard form on which we record UFO sightings being based on the old Project Blue Book form. It's it's obvious that there's a US-UK read across. I mean, there, there has to be. What I was going to ask was that kind of naturally then maybe takes me on to the, the quick fire and word association. And you can say as much or as little about these topics as you like. And if you don't have any particular comment on it, just say. But talking about To The Stars Academy, what are your general thoughts on TTSA and what they're doing and, and where they're going? Well, they're seriously driving forward the narrative on this. Uh, there are people in there like Lou Elizondo, like Chris Mellon, like Steve Justice, who have genuine verifiable backgrounds in, in government, in intelligence, in, in black project aviation community. And when people like that go on the record, I think we should all listen to what they have to say. Um, absolutely. These, these are people who've had a degree of involvement with this subject from within government, and they are now pursuing that, that, that same agenda to have a serious conversation about this, to get engagement on this. They're pursuing that now outside government, and I wish them well with it. I would say, Nick, someone like yourself in the 90s and 2000s, and it's something you continue to do, you've definitely helped open the door on the topic to get it more into the, the mainstream, into the media with helping declassifying documents. Do you think, well, TTSA have definitely opened the door a little bit more. Do you think they're the people to drive this forward and, and open it even further? Yes, absolutely. And in conjunction with that, we have journalists like Brian Bender at Politico, uh, Leslie Kane, who's written about this for the New York Times with Ralph Blumenthal and Helene Cooper. We have Tim McMillan writing for Popular Mechanics. Um, we, we, have, we have a whole bunch of, of other people um, writing both in the specialist aviation community, the UFO community, the, the more general uh, mainstream media, and, and all of this moves it forward. We have George Knapp, of course, uh, who has close ties to Robert Bigelow and to a number of the, the other people in To The Stars Academy. I, I think there's always a debate when, when uh, journalists like that get access and, and some people doubt the say, you know, are you just putting uh, their line forward? Well, I mean, you know, this isn't, this isn't a debate unique to UFOs. Any good journalist who cultivates sources within government and gets invited, for example, to intelligence briefings where, where they have to use phrases like um, a government source made it clear that dot, dot, dot. I mean, it's, it's a difficult journalistic line to to tread, but um, a, a lot of these people are, are doing superb work out there. And, and yes, of course, there are still some unanswered questions 
about all this, about what we're dealing with, about what the agendas of some of these organizations and individuals uh, might be. But absolutely, the ball is being moved down the field. Awesome. Um, something that has been in the circulating, shall I say, on, on Twitter and the internet for a while and it's came back into prevalence and, and rumours there's going to be something else coming forward with it would be the Admiral Wilson leaks. Is that something you're familiar with or have any thoughts on? I'm familiar with it. Uh, Stephen Greenstreet at the New York Post, of course, through the basement office has uh, covered this. Um, uh, particularly, it came up with Eric Davis in the bonus episode. I think I'm going to be very careful here because of the suggestion that some of this information is still classified. There are penalties for talking about classified information, even if you are not the person that's leaked it. Okay. If it has been leaked and you you sort of comment on it, even if you're doing so in good faith. And now that I, I think certainly Eric Davis has made it clear that that some of this material may still be classified, I want to follow the line of not really discussing it um, until I'm clear and until I'm satisfied that it's not classified. And and I'm not yet satisfied that it isn't. So uh, yeah, and I'm not going to comment on that any further, if you'll forgive me. No, of course, that's, that's absolutely fine. Um, so have you any thoughts on how the consciousness fits into the UAP or UFO phenomenon? Gosh, really not my field. I know people like um, uh, Grant Cameron, and and a huge number of other people are into this. Um, you know, all, all I can say is uh, I, I would really just get myself into trouble with the deep specialists if I even started talking about this. Uh, in, in terms, I, I have no no knowledge of of you know, cognition and psychology and and brain mind split, etc., etc., etc. I'm going to leave that to the people that have studied it i simply haven't sure three more things in for me nick on the quick fire and then we'll wrap up um i had dan also ask this as well the you had a picture i believe in your office on the wall of the calvine ufo and he was just asking for some more detail on that if you had any well it's a fascinating case from august 1990 so my predecessor investigated this one and uh, we had a series of I think there were six photographs taken by a couple of people out hiking who saw a large diamond shaped UFO I had a blown up poster sized copy of the best photo on my office wall for many years my opposite number and the defense intelligence staff I think had the same thing when the ministry of defense ufo files were declassified and released i thought oh good people will get to see this photograph and all that came out was a couple of very poor quality black and white photocopies 
of an old line drawing of one of the photos, which looks almost cartoonish. Now, a line drawing is something that's used in, in imagery analysis for all sorts of complex technical reasons I won't go into. But um, yeah, suffice to say the original photos, uh, the Ministry of Defence's official position is that they cannot be located. Um, I hope they will turn up at some stage because the Ministry of Defence had declassified the file because they'd released the line drawing uh, photocopy for a TV show. I teamed up with a graphic artist in L.A. And from that and from my recollection, because, of course, for two or three years, I was sitting watching this, looking at this thing on the wall every every day sitting in the office. We recreated it. And so there is... There is a particular recreation out there, which is, is exceptional. I, I mean, it's, it, when I looked at, at what the guy had done, I was like, that's it. That's it. Um, where the original has gone, I don't know. Whether it will ever resurface, I don't know. Um, it, it's a very complex case for a number of reasons. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's about all I can say, I think. Would you, would you say you got any particular feeling looking at that photo of a potential UFO than, than any other that could be digitally enhanced or faked or altered or even potentially genuine? Was there something about it that did make you think, hmm, that there's something to this? Well, I think rather like the Tic Tac, um, and bear in mind, I was looking at this after the investigation, which had included... Um, what was then called uh, JARIC, Joint Aerial Reconnaissance and Intelligence Center. Um, now part of, goodness, I, I can't even remember what they've retitled to, the Defense Imagery Center or something like that, I think. But essentially, Intelligence Community Imagery Analysis Resources and Capabilities. I was looking at this after they had done their work on this to say, yes, this is genuine photo it's not a faked photo it is a a solid craft and what what struck us all about this was the lack of any obvious you know fuselage wings tail engines uh, so of course it had us asking all sorts of questions about energy source and propulsion system aerodynamics, avionics, all, all those sorts of questions that, of course, the people like Lou Elizondo are now asking in relation to the Nimitz incident and, and similar sightings. Absolutely. So it's, it's always drawing those parallels, even going back 20, 30 years. So that, that's really good to hear, that kind of consistency. Um, yes, yeah. we want to know, yeah, how, how does it fly? How does something that apparent size and we had i'm not sure i i can actually say um because i can't remember if this is classified or not so i better not you, you know how can something that size and apparent shape how um, how does it how does it fly uh, you, you know what what is its maximum speed and acceleration are we looking at some uh, our own technology some deep black project that even those of us in the department can't get access to 
Well, one would hope that someone would simply have picked up the phone and said, uh, one of ours can't tell you any details, but uh, please don't pursue this any further. As I say, it was my predecessor, so um, I can't speak with 100% authority, but I don't think that happened, which is interesting. But as I say, is it is it our own tech? Is it Russia? Is it China? Or is it from somewhere rather further afield? We didn't know. And I wasn't happy that we didn't apparently have an answer to that question. And that's nice to hear. Even you get frustrated with these things as well, which I'm sure you have done many, many times in the roles that you've been in. I suppose on a similar kind of topic, when you talk about is this potentially ours or is it, is it something more exotic? Have you any opinion on the concept of ultra ultra terrestrials, which isn't a new concept, but it's something Tom DeLong has discussed on his Twitter feed? Yes, I mean, this is, I suppose, simply put, the idea that, that there are other intelligences, perhaps um, indigenous to planet Earth, that, that are not homo sapiens sapiens. Well, um, interesting if true is, is I think, the, the best assessment I can give of that. I've, I've not looked into it in any, any detail. I'm aware of the bare bones of the theory, but I've, I've certainly seen no evidence that would support that. Uh, but neither, I suppose, can something like that be entirely dismissed and i mean you know without wanting to get into total you know guesswork on this but when you run through the list of possibilities some people will will pull out not just the extraterrestrial hypothesis or the crypto terrestrial or, or whatever but but other people talk about um time travel other, some people talk about other dimensions some people even talk about um, angels and demons, of course. I mean, I, I think uh, that gets us into all sorts of other problems about these essentially being just words and labels that stem very often from our own particular culture and belief system. But I'll put it out there for what it's worth. No, really good answer. And like you say, I think that when you start going into those labels, that's where we've got so many branches within ufology and the UFO community that has, has expanded into many podcasts, many documentaries, many books and, and whatnot. Uh, and the final thing I'd like to ask, I'd like to ask all my guests is what does disclosure mean to you? And are we currently in the midst of some kind of disclosure? Disclosure to me does not mean, let me turn it around. And it's an answer I've given before, so apologies. Some people have probably heard this, but I think it's worth repeating. Disclosure to me is not how many people in the UFO community see it, i.e. my fellow Americans, people of the world, we are not alone, sort of special presidential announcement. That's not disclosure to me because I think that's, that's unrealistic. Disclosure to me simply means almost a, a more dictionary definition interpretation. It means the release of information. And therefore, there's no getting away from the fact that we are right in the middle of that in relation to UFOs. We have, whether it's the Ministry of Defense UFO files or more recently, the Pentagon's ATIP program, 
the US Navy encounters, we, we are undeniably in a situation where we have more information about this. The number of pilots involved in those incidents, radar operators, intelligence officers, now on the record with this, a small but growing number of documents. Um, we have letters, for example, from uh, Harry Reid to the Deputy Defence Secretary. We have the ATIP contractual solicitation documents. We have one of the uh, Bigelow Aerospace uh, Progress reports. We have a letter that the Defence Intelligence Agency sent to Congress about ATIP, listing 38 studies produced under the, the ATIP contract, one of which was relating to the Drake equation, the only purpose of which is to estimate the number of communicable civilizations in the galaxy. It's got nothing to do with Russia or China, uh, aircraft, missiles, drones, etc. So, so we are, I, I would say we are experiencing disclosure in relation to UFOs right now. We are just not seeing the disclosure with a capital D that that some people in the UFO community uh, lobby for and believe we are about to get. I agree. For me, again, it's more of a, a drip feed movement that may have started some time ago. And now and again, the tap gets turned on a little more. But other times that the tap gets uh, tightened back up. So, no, I agree. So, Nick, that's great. Thank you very much for your time today. I've really appreciated it. Um, do you have any final words for the listeners and what we can expect next from Nick Pope? Is there anything you're working on you want to talk about? Well, I'm involved in a number of projects, whether it's uh, movies, TV, books, etc. I generally can't say much about these until official announcements have been made. And clearly in relation to television, um, a lot of stuff has been on hold because of coronavirus. But as soon as I'm able to announce new projects, I'll do so. If people want to uh, keep up with my work, find a, a little bit out about my, my former government job, my website is nickpope.net. And there are links there to my social media um, presence. I, I think my, my Twitter handle is Nick Pope M-O-D. Uh, it, no, it's not an official Ministry of Defense account. I just picked it because it's, I suppose, emblematic of what I'm best known for, but at Nick Pope M-O-D on Twitter. But nickpope.net is my website, and there's information about my, my work, my books um, there. That's great. Nick, again, thank you for your time. Folks, if you've made it this far, that was Nick Pope, and I hope you really enjoyed the content of what we discussed, if at times the audio wasn't of the best quality. Again, uh, apologies, but if you've made it this far, I really do appreciate it. Be sure to download next week's episode, where there are no audio issues, and the content is equally as good, if not even more interesting, on Skinwalker Ranch, extraterrestrials, UFOs, and what a ranch superintendent actually does, and that's all with Thomas Winterton in episode 8. There's a lot more guests coming up over the next few weeks, still one or two I can't confirm for reasons I've been asked not to at the minute, 
but there's some really exciting content coming in the future, folks. Again, follow me on Twitter at UFO UAPAM. Follow on Facebook at that UFO podcast. And on the Instagram, again, that is something we're going to be doing more and more of, getting involved on Instagram as well. So, folks, it's been great. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, please keep reviewing, subscribing, and liking the show. Remember, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. Thank you.